Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 94, recorded on January 30th of 2020. And this is where I get to geek out on a weekly basis with a, a friend, a colleague, a co-pilot of sorts. And we take a look at the uh, the news stories that uh, have kind of rung interesting and geeky over the last week. Or in this case, it's been a little while over the Christmas break. And I had been doing some traveling, uh, traveling to meet somebody, actually, that I am now talking to virtually. And I have with me as, uh, as my guest on this episode, Larry Becker. Larry, how are you doing? Above average. And in fact, you picked the right day. We picked the right day to do this recording because had we done it two days earlier, I would still be in severe cold mode. So I am done sneezing, coughing and sniffing. And uh, I, and I still have the luxurious low voice from the cold. Oh, perfect. So, I, so I, this I, is the <laughs> right day. I, I just installed a, a mute button uh, in in my uh, audio channel system here so that if I have to cough, which I'm also recovering from something right now, I now have a tool that I don't have to edit things out in post. So I'm happy about that. But uh, Larry, we met recently um, down in uh, in Florida. I was uh, uh, I was lucky to have the opportunity to drive down to, uh, uh, well, first to Sarasota to meet with uh, with my good friend and I think our mutual friend, Skip Cohen. Yeah. And then uh, maybe about an hour and a half north to uh, to Scott Kelby Studios in, uh, in uh, the uh, wonderful Kelby One space and to be a part of the grid. I was on camera, you were in the peanut gallery, but we had yep. a good time. And yeah, it was great was, to meet you in person. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Of course, I've been following your work and you've been on our podcast, mine with Rick Salmon. And um, uh, I, I've been following a lot of what you do. And then, of course, you and your work tend to be uh, an occasional topic of conversation when I'm talking to our mutual friend, Dr. Larry T. And um, uh, so we've we've crossed paths through a number of mutual friends over a number of uh, uh, months, years. And so it's nice connecting and meeting in person. It was a very nice thing to see you in person there when uh, when the grid was announcing the Platyball. Yeah, and that was a, a wonderful announcement. And that Kickstarter campaign is going on right now. We should maybe just mention that. And I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Larry, uh, Larry T of uh, Platypod, uh, which I've been using their gear for, uh, you know, uh, quite a while, especially more since they released their gooseneck arms, which mm-hmm. make the Platypod Max the perfect sort of base of operations for macro photography, because I can attach any LED flashlight or even like the little Lytra torches or uh, a loom cubes or whatever you have already in your kit that has a built-in quarter 20 um, a tripod screw head, then you can just start mounting that and position them very close uh, and very flexibly in front of any macro subject. And so for the bulk of the last year, I've really been enjoying that. And uh, when Larry hinted to me that he was working on a ball head, I immediately was interested because he's done some great work before, very innovative. Uh, And when I was in Florida, I was able to get my hands on it in person. I don't know if you had your hands on it before then either. Oh, yeah. Um, But uh, it was a solid piece of equipment. And, uh, you know, in prototype form as it was, and uh, Larry wants to be a perfectionist about this, and and I don't, uh, I, I don't question his desire to do that i i'm all for it uh, but even as it stood it was a really cool piece of gear um, and it's currently on kickstarter and they're just knocking it out of the park so if you want to check that out uh, again the links to that will be in the show notes but if you just go to platyball 
P-L-A-T-Y-B-A-L-L.com. It'll bring you right there. Uh, so there's a good plug for Larry, and it's well-deserved. Right. And knowing that this podcast is going to live on forever, the um, the actual Kickstarter wraps up at the end of this year. So here we are at the beginning of the year when it kickstarts, then uh, it'll go through the end of the year when the commercial product will be, and there are actually two versions, will be available. Um, and then at that point, when you go to platyball.com, I'm sure it's just going to be the uh, the site host at the, and the Kickstarter will be over. But um, what a cool product. I did get to see an earlier version um, a couple months earlier uh, last year in I think it was Las Vegas. We were at a, a trade show and I got to see it out there and it was a very interesting thing. I, he's shown me a couple of iterations over the uh, months and years and it's actually much more beautiful looking than one of the first versions that um, Scott Kelby said looked kind of like a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you're, it's it's functionality over form to begin, and then the form and the aesthetics evolve over time. I mean, you should see some of the crazy contraptions I create in my studio. Like, I was working on, uh, I forget which documentary it was. I think it was a National Geographic product. And I was, uh, I, I bought a, um, a hot glue gun. Mm-hmm. and and some picture frames, like super cheap, the cheapest ones I could find just to get some glass. And I'm gluing sheets of glass together in parallel. And I've got some corrugated plastic as a, as a weird funnel that I'm creating so that I can shake um, this little uh, sifter that I made out of chicken wire and uh, canvas stretcher bars full of snow down through the system to make it look like snow is rising up and uh, and kind of accumulating over time to get this particular shot required for a documentary. And uh, it fell apart immediately afterwards. I mean, but it functioned, right? And it was it was ugly. It was uh-huh. obscene and uh, and it worked. And, and I, I never had to revisit that. I never had to make it look beautiful because it did the job. That's wonderful. Yeah, I have so many things... Um in that genre. I've never elevated my uh, inventions to the level that Larry T has, um, making a commercial saleable product. For the most part, what I did for a couple of years when I actually worked full-time at Kelby One is uh, I had a regular video series and article series in Photoshop User Magazine called Larry's Cheap Shots. And I just tried to come up with can you go to the hardware store and grab one of these and it'll help you with your photography this way? And so a whole lot of different um, uh, things that allow us then to invest in good glass in the things that you can't um, halfway make yourself. And so I had all kinds of things from V-flats that I I did homemade with, speaking of corrugated, corrugated plastic, I had my own V-flats made of that in white and in black. Um, I would buy tile board so that I had a white floor that people could stand on. And it was also a reflective white floor. Uh, I bought clear plexiglass all the time doing all kinds of different projects with that. So did quite a bit of that. If you don't want to spend money on a good neutral density filter, but you want to see what the effect would have on your images, you can buy welding glass for $7 or less. Yep. yep. Uh, and it's going to be awfully green and hard to color correct, but 
If you don't know if this is something that you want to play with, that hardware store trip can come up with all sorts of really interesting things to help you not elevate the quality of your craft, but elevate the knowledge you have in order to create a better image. And sure. sometimes, uh, as you mentioned, with your V-flats, they probably functioned as good as a commercial product. Yeah, they um, were fine. And in fact, some of my ideas evolved into commercial products that I wasn't actually even a part of. I had... Um, I was very happy with, and I still love my Hoodman Hood Loop. Uh, uh, you mentioned this, I think, the last time you were okay. on. Yeah, and yeah. so so I came up with something that would keep it attached to my uh, belt, and it was a, a key, a retractable key ring uh, thing that wasn't a chain; it was one that had a, a nylon cable. And they actually went to the manufacturer of that key back thing and made their own. It's a I great idea. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and I think that we're in a bit of a renaissance in photography right now where um, in the past, and I might have mentioned this before on this podcast as well, but looking back through old um, uh, photo, uh, just used bookstore photo finds, you know, just uh, pulling anything out of there. And some of them were garbage. Um, some of them had really interesting facts. And I always remembered uh, this one technique that somebody was uh, employing to uh, to kind of fade out the edges of an image, and they were okay. doing a darkroom print, and it was a ship uh, amongst a many uh, many other ships in a harbor, and they wanted just the one in the center to be nice and sharp. So they took a sheet of overhead projection material, that clear acetate uh, sure. sheet, and they cut a hole in the middle. And during the exposure, they moved that ever so slightly around in order to obscure anything outside of the center and moving it during the exposure feathered the edges. We don't have a lot of that in the photographic space today, right? right. We have uh, we have a lot of things that everybody has commercialized and you can go out and you can readily buy a product that might do something similar. Right. Um, in every possible way. But the inventiveness, I think, is harder to find. It's not uh, encouraged as much as it may have been in the past. And well, one of the I'm things not, I love to do is encourage that. Well, I don't even know that it it is the way that people are thinking these days. The way people are thinking these days seems to be oriented around Photoshop and Lightroom and doing those things in post because you don't need to uh, do them in the darkroom. I did darkroom development and dodging and burning. And so I have an appreciation for exactly what you're talking about. That is a clever idea and a good approach. And um, uh, we see that happening now so much more in post. And then we also see finished software that has artificial intelligence to do things like full-blown sky replacement. So we don't even have to think about, oh, are the skies beautiful today? We can go out with a plain sky and fully replace it. Now, what do you think about that in terms of um, photographic integrity? I, I would assume that it's based on what the intent of the photographer is solely. Sure. But, um, you know, if if I have a beautiful sky, uh, I, I do have a number of images that I've experimented with in the past where I have done like massive uh, uh, composites. I've replaced the foreground. I've replaced the background. I've heavily modified the middle ground with different elements in order to make something that was um, uh, of advertising quality for something. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but it is by its nature, not a depiction of reality. Correct. And so uh, I dug into this quite a bit when I used to work at Kelby One. Um, for five years of the 10 that I spent at the Kelby offices, I was the executive director of the National Association of Photoshop Professionals. And so discussions about 
what can you do, what's fair to do, what is incorrect, what's misleading, uh, were quite pervasive. There were entire forum sections devoted to that. And what I would say is if you are a news um, gatherer and purporting that what you're showing is actual, then you get to do very little. You might get to color correct your image. You might get to sharpen it a little bit. But even then, you want to do things that um, back in those days, we would just say a global improvement of the image, fine. But if you start uh, photoshopping away and erasing aspects of an image just to point out something that you think is the important aspect of, of that news story, uh, to emphasize that, you know, you've got a picture of somebody holding a gun and you want to emphasize the picture of that person holding the gun, but you change the scene and the surroundings that is untrue and actually a violation of the trust of providing news photography. On the well, other and, hand, and, commercial uh, photography. Yeah, continue. Yeah. On the, when you're doing commercial photography, it depends on the circumstance. And so then you get into things. And I had a, a lot of interesting conversations with my friend Joe Glida, who did food photography for craft for decades. And he actually taught several Kelby One classes in food photography. And I was there when he was teaching some of them. And one of them, he showed a spoonful of peas and he needed to have steam coming off that spoonful of peas. Well, we didn't cook the peas. They stacked them onto the spoon, which was held in a, a clip. They stacked them onto the spoon with tweezers. Once we had a stack of peas, then he got a birthday candle, blew out the birthday candle and let the smoke rise behind the spoon of peas. And it looks like steam coming off the, the peas. And, and that is acceptable in most cases. Um, but keep in mind, then there are also some regulations about you're not allowed to, in some food photography, certainly here in the United States, you're not allowed to depict incorrectly some of the things that people do um, to make things look better. Well, I mean, for example, you mentioned a birthday candle and blowing that out and having smoke. I've heard uh, stories about like microwaving a wet tampon um, and that creating a source of steam and then sure. injecting that into the scene as well to create a very similar effect. Um, all sorts of tricks within that industry. Um, and is it disingenuous or is it showing you the best possible form of the product in a way that can be photographically pleasing? And, and I think that's really what the goal is so long as you don't stray from it. But even from a photojournalist perspective, as you were mentioning, um, you know, a, a, an image comes to mind, uh, which uh, you uh, might be able to picture uh, the vulture and the little girl. Okay. And uh, so this was an image, and I wish I had the photographer's name off the top of my head, but um, it was uh, an award-winning image um, that led to the photographer's suicide because um, it showed a very malnourished uh, little girl, I, I don't know, maybe around the age of four or five, uh, and a vulture standing next to the little girl looking at her very intently. And uh, it was a very, very powerful message. But what it didn't show was that the family of the little girl was just outside the frame. And in fact, that they were on their way to get uh, humanitarian aid and for which they received. Uh, and, and you look at that and you think that as a photojournalist, even if you don't modify that image, you get to choose what 
is in and out of the frame. And you can do that by turning the camera. You can do that by getting closer or farther away, changing your focal length, even changing your aperture to have important elements that would otherwise be noticeable, now unnoticeable within sure. the background. So it's it's not just about what you do after you press the shutter button. It's very wholeheartedly what you do before as well. I couldn't agree more. The, um, uh, the main thing though that's going on these days, and, and we started this whole path of discussion Talking about sky replacement, uh, what I find is that so many people, so much of contemporary photography, with the sole exception of photojournalism, is a, a lot of people who want to take pretty pictures to show off to their friends on Instagram, on Facebook, and what have you. And so the goal is a beautiful image. Um, oh, people swim in toxic lakes because they have a turquoise color because that will give them a beautiful image and a rash and a burn as part of the process. I mean, sure. this is human nature and our own stupidity at play here. You won't get an argument from me. There are a lot of wacky things people do just to get a great image. And uh, I'm happy that we're fixing some of it in post instead of causing people to always go to the toxic route. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. It is a, it is an interesting thing. And on, on its face, um, I think the main thing that most people care about these days, not so much us photo geeks, but most people seem to care about what does the finished image look like. And now that their uh, iPhone and Google Pixel captures images that they can apply filters to within the phone before they get uploaded to social media, those people are happier and happier about the finished look of their image even if it's not what was really going on. And I think that touches on a number of the stories that we have uh, on the table today. So let's dive into that. Uh, enough preamble, although that was very enjoyable. Um, the story number one is confirmed from Venus Optics. This is a DP Review article. Uh, it, they're working on a new line of ultra-fast uh, Argus is the the, uh, the moniker that they're going to provide, f0.95 lenses. Now, um, f0.95 has been something of a, uh, a number put up on a pedestal for many years, partly by Leica with their Noctilux lens, which is still currently available, um, and I believe is in the... Uh, 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 the, the pentuple digits in, in terms of cost in, in US dollars. Um, and it was something of an extremely fast lens, but not terribly that good. It was good, but not great uh, because it had to be designed around a very small uh, lens design so that it wouldn't obstruct the view of the rangefinder, which was what it was intended for. Um, you can get F0.95 lenses from a number of companies anywhere from $300 to eight thousand dollars which is where the uh the new nikon or the the nikor uh uh knocked uh, 58 millimeter f0.95 lens comes in but liowa and uh, uh zongyi optics which we'll talk about in a later story these chinese manufacturers have been really pushing limits uh to create lenses that are somewhat innovative but at a very inexpensive price um I think this is playing on the idea of that whole pedestal that has been established in the past, and I'm not sure how necessarily usable it is. Have you, Larry, ever had a desire to shoot with an aperture of something smaller than f1.2? A desire to try it out for experimental purposes? Absolutely. The desire to do that by pulling out my wallet? No. 
<laughs> Fair enough. I mean, Canon originally showed off their EF f1.0 uh, lens when they introduced the uh, the EF lens mount and everything else because uh, Nikon couldn't compete. The mm-hmm. uh, the fastest autofocus lens that Nikon was capable of was f1.4. Now they're really kind of uh, beating the drum that they can do better than that at this stage of the game. Um, but even that lens from Canon wasn't good. And f1.2 lenses traditionally haven't been the best in terms of overall sharpness. They have had a character to them, though. Sure. And so we've seen uh, everything from the reinvention of the Meyer Optic Trio Plan 100, which uh, now, I mean, they uh, NetSE, the company that brought that brand back, went bankrupt, and OPC Optics is now in charge of that, and they're reissuing that again. And I'm still waiting for my Leica L mount version of that one, which has been delayed and delayed because it gives me unusual bokeh in the background. Not because it's optically good, but because it does something weird, Uh something unexpected in camera optically that I find very useful to pursue uh, rather than having to look back on post-processing efforts in order to make things magical. Uh, I think that same allure is here. Right when people want to have this uh, this really wide effect, they'll show a full body portrait of somebody in a landscape scene where the background is completely out of focus. But I, honestly, when I see an image that looks like that, this is uh, kind of counter to what the person wants. But it looks photoshopped. It looks like yeah. that person was cut out because it's just not an expected way that we see the world. Right. I agree, but I, I I think that a lot of the the attempts to provide cutting edge technology, whether it's lenses or in camera technology, amazing new sensor capabilities, whatever it is, um, what I'm seeing is over the past ten years, especially the photography industry, the camera gear industry has changed, and while it continues to evolve at its standard pace. The fact that so many people have what they consider to be an acceptable or even good camera in their cell phone is changing what Canon and Nikon and the other big manufacturers are doing. Um, You're watching the point-and-shoot market dissolve into the smartphone market. Oh, that's already happened. Of course. And so what happens now is they see a need and they're all scrambling. What do we do? What do we do? And the answer for some of them is something like this. Let's go push the boundaries of the most extreme on those rare pieces of equipment that the smartphone can't touch. And so I, I see an effort in that direction, whether or not there's a giant payoff, whether or not it's fiscally intelligent for the camera manufacturers remains to be seen. I would think that a wider angle uh, f0.95 lens would be novel for artistic creative purposes. You could imagine trying to photograph, uh, say, like the the reflection of stars in in a pool of water uh, or a lake or something, but then having the actual stars being so far out of focus, the stars themselves become bokeh. I mean, that's an artistic control element that can't really be easily faked in post-processing or even by artificial intelligence software that's trying to figure something out. It's a tool, right? Sure. but, But it's also a tool that bends reality. And we could get into a deeper discussion about what reality actually is. You see the world differently than your dog does, differently than anybody that's sitting next to you. And the camera inherently sees the world differently as well. Um, and it's a tool that I 
continuously use in order to see the world differently. Uh, just prior to recording in my studio, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to grow citric acid crystals on microscope slides so that I may cross polarize them and get some crazy rainbow colors in beautiful fractal designs that will make for an interesting ab- abstract image. It's not the reality that I would ever see, but the camera can depict that. And I think that the more of these tools we have available to us, especially at lower price points that companies like Venus Optics is known for, um, allow the photographer to transition their work away from that photojournalistic integrity of this is the way the world has to be into this is the the way that the world can be seen beyond our own perceptions. And I think that's valuable. Well, and anything that gives the artist the ability to use a tool that that others don't have access to. I mean, I'm not a musician, but I know that uh, certain violins made with certain woods that you couldn't get anywhere else created certain sound and resonance that was exclusive to that particular uh, collection of five or eight or ten copies of that instrument, and people craved that. Um, but only the people that were the artists looking for that particular uh, experience. And I think the same is true in photography, that we all appreciate the finished image, but not all the people out there can see in advance why they might want a piece of gear like that. Yep, yep. Uh, Well, (laughs) talking about artists, I mean, when you create something artistic, it's yours, right? I mean, you uh, you own it uh, in the sense that you have the copyright to it, regardless of whether or not you register the copyright. That's another story that varies sure. based on uh, country. Um, the next story reported from Petapixel uh, says Lady Gaga criticizes music pirates with pirated photos. That was uh, hilarious. <laughs> So, okay, I'll, I'll just read the, the intro here. Uh, Lady Gaga, uh, uh, her new song, Stupid Love, leaked onto the internet and went viral last weekend. The singer called out fans who had listened to the unauthorized release. Problem was, Lady Gaga's tweet used pirated stock photos that had the Shutterstock watermarks splashed across them. And this unauthorized usage didn't escape the company's notice. So this happened on January 22nd. And uh, it, this, the images that Lady Gaga has, uh, has taken without permission, they've got the Shutterstock logo on them, but that does not permit their use with that logo present. This is still copyright right. infringement. It's designed to deter people from not license, licensing things, but it does not qualify as fair use uh, or fair dealing here in Canada. Um, it, it's missing pretty well every one of the pillars of that. Uh, so... Lady Gaga took these images of uh, of a looks like a, a a younger girl wearing a balaclava with uh, some a big over the ear headphones and a what looks like an antiquated MP3 player of some mm-hmm. sort. Uh, yeah. Who knows when the image was actually taken? Um, but you know, wearing the balaclava in uh, instills theft uh, or thievery, uh, and then you're listening to the music as a result. And her uh, her words were. Y'all can't stop, or, or can y'all stop, is what uh, what she said. Stop pirating my music using the images from Shutterstock 
And um, uh, you take it from there, Larry. Well, I think it was actually kind of funny that that happened. I mean, ironically so, as a photographer who has been involved with this, and I am good friends with uh, Jack Resnicki and Ed Greenberg, who have been kind of the leaders here in the U.S., talking about teaching uh, copyright and copyright registration and helping me with things like model releases. In one of their books, they had uh, uh, model release help and actual uh, language that we would use in model releases. I still have those in my iPad today, and I use those, modify them slightly for the video work that I'm doing. And video victims that are part of my projects all sign those model releases. And I think that's just best practices. But with respect to the Lady Gaga story, the frustrating thing to me, and to me, it just struck me as funny because I do appreciate that Shutterstock did bring it up. I do understand that Lady Gaga defenders uh, would come out of the woodwork and defend her on Twitter and just yell at um, Shutterstock. But Shutterstock was in the right to go after the use, the unfair use of those images. But the big frustration for me wasn't the argument. It wasn't the silly people defending Lady Gaga. It wasn't the fact that Lady Gaga didn't come back and say, oh, I'm sorry, or let me license those or let me pay for them. It was that the artist himself who took the original images that were stolen, Richard Nelson, he allowed them to be used because he recreated the tweet without the watermarks and sent out the images. Yes. And so, you know, Shutterstock's original um, uh, wording here was, we hear you. We like artists to be paid for their work too. Here's a link to the photographer's work where you can license these quality images. Listen, uh, lists both of them and gives a little winking emoji. And uh, Richard Nelson comes in and uh, says, at Lady Gaga, as the photographer of this picture, I've got you, with a number of stupid emojis as well. Um, but what the photographer has just done there is they just they just said goodbye to a very big paycheck. Because, I mean, in this scenario, and I don't know what Shutterstock's process is uh, for uh, enforcing copyright. Usually stock photo agencies have um, the right of first refusal to go after infringement themselves. And by Shutterstock's response, they weren't going to do that if right. they were just publicly tweeting about this. So maybe that left him no recourse. But I would have loved if there was some other way, because if that says that Shutterstock is not pursuing this as a right of first refusal, which means they would have the right to pursue it unless they negate that right or say that we don't care. They're kind of saying that we don't care, which means he would have been able to hire somebody like Ed Greenberg. Um, and Lady Gaga's got enough money to give this guy a nice, nice paycheck for misusing his work, sure. especially in the context of saying, can you stop infringing on the copyrights of my own work? I mean, it's just terrible that he did that because I want Richard Nelson to get a lot of money for these goofy images that I don't know how many times they've been licensed, maybe not a whole lot. They should be they, they should be paying his mortgage. I agree. I agree. It was incredibly frustrating to me that he did what he did. But if I were Shutterstock at this point, I'd be contacting the attorney group and saying, based on this experience, let's change our agreement with all of our photographers so that they cannot 
undermine and give away an image after the fact once it's been stolen. Yeah, stolen from Shutterstock specifically. No question. Uh, there, there could be a simple clause uh, built into that. Although, again, based on Shutterstock's very public communication with Lady Gaga on yeah. this ama- uh, uh, on this um, uh, occurrence here, uh, it doesn't look like they were going to do that. Right. Because if if they had the intention of pursuing any legal action, they would not be publicly talking about it. They would be sending a, a registered letter uh, or something of that uh, of that nature. But but even still, uh, the whole scenario, I deal with copyright infringement on a daily basis. Some of yeah. my images we were talking off air get stolen so readily, and especially in countries where I cannot defend it. Uh, anywhere in Asia, for example, it's almost impossible to defend your copyright. Um, that I, I mean, I send takedown notices whenever I encounter things, or if it is a commercial infringement that I can take action on, mm-hmm. uh, people don't get to profit from my work at no cost to them. Uh, and it's, it's just the part of being a photographer. And I don't mean to say that, uh, as a photographer who's making money and depending on their work for their living, I mean, any photographer should be able to profit from their work. Uh, and in this case, I'm so glad that the original photographer discovered the infringement, uh, Mm -hmm. first of all. Um, uh, but the course of action that photographers should take never do it yourself. Contact a lawyer right away. Get a legal opinion. Uh, I mean, Ed Greenberg might be somebody that you approach. Um, I've dealt with a number of attorneys within Canada and the United States. Um, Leslie Burns is another good one out of California that has handled some wonderful cases for me. But in in this scenario, um, every photographer should be vigilant and know that their work has value. And it should not be given away uh, because as an artist, if anybody else appreciates your work, um, they should have to do something to show that appreciation monetarily or otherwise in kind. I couldn't agree more. I think the uh, the thing that we owe one another as fellow photographers is to be true to the industry. And if something gets stolen, defend that theft uh, and and go after it to the best of your ability within the framework that is provided. One of the, the one of the main reasons that I do appreciate what Jack Resnicki and Ed do is that they teach how best to go about registering your images for copyright protection. And it takes very little extra effort. And I think they updated it, uh, updated fairly recently how you go about the process because some things in the laws have changed with copyright and the copyright registration here in the United States. You've got to provide a spreadsheet now. And I think you're limited to only 750 images uh, in, in a bunch based on the year that they were photographed. And I know this because on January 1st and 2nd of this year, I finally, instead of just one-offing images here and there that I knew would be uh, very valuable, I decided to just do yearly chunks. Mm-hmm. And I did uh, uh, registrations, which cost, I think, $55 per year. Uh, and you can register, again, up to 750 images. Uh, you have to tell what uh, what month they were published in. Uh, if they were published, and there's a different form for unpublished works, uh, and uh, and fill out this whole spreadsheet with all that information, and I did that, and it took me two days to register eight years worth of images. Wow. Okay. So, I that I mean, on its own, if you do that once a year for that year's worth of work, um, just to say in the future I'm going to defend myself, just make 
make a new year's resolution January 1st, the previous year is all going to be registered. You could do that more frequently, of course, but just that at the bare minimum will probably take you about an hour and a half of your time Mm -hmm. uh, at most. And that's depending on how many images that you've published within within that year. Um, Everybody should do that. There's no excuse not to. I agree. I think that uh, I think that this is something that a lot more photographers need to become aware of. Uh, certainly, the young and uh, blossoming photo artists that are coming up through the industry—they aren't as uh, on top of these things, especially with the shareability and the way that we all look at shared images uh, on the internet these days. Right, uh, and. <sighs> I hate to say it, but there's the pervasive mentality on the internet that if I find it on Google, it, it must be free, right? Um, and- I, I had a friend <laughs> that I would say is a, um, a millennial, and this person works for a company that a friend of mine owns. And this person uh, did exactly what you're talking about, found an image on the internet and used it in an ad that they had put together for my friend's company. My friend's company got an email with a very large bill for the incorrect use. And, and this person had no idea that they had broken the law. Right, because you know, the person working for you, they're, they're, uh, they're your employee. They represent you and anything that they do for you. In fact, if you hire a web designer and that web designer misuses images in your website design in any right. way, um, you're on the hook for it, not them. Same with uh, drone photography and drone videos. If the drone pilot violates FAA regulations here in the U.S., uh, that drone pilot puts the company whose finished product is the result of the creation, they put them on the line. In many cases, the owners of those companies are told, you should have known. Well, copyright is a black and white thing. Even if you don't know you're infringing on copyright, you're infringing on copyright. There's yeah. no middle ground within that. And the FAA rules, I believe, are quite similar the last time that I looked at them. Um, but uh, anyhow, I really wish the photographer wouldn't have conceded here. But uh, let's move on to the next story. This is another interesting one, uh, something that I, uh, uh, that I have personal interaction with. In fact, it's an article that I wrote. Uh, mm-hmm. for Petapixel, uh, titled Back to the, uh, Back from the Drawing Board, Metacon 85mm 1x to 5x Macro Lens Redesigned. So uh, long story short, uh, Zongyi Optics, another Chinese manufacturer, decided to kind of uh, go toe-to-toe with the Canon MPE 65mm macro lens, which is also a 1x to 5x macro lens. And they're the only other company to have produced something within that magnification range. Um, And they were touting all sorts of really interesting things, including uh, what would be very valuable in some cases as a longer working distance, further away from the subject. So the Canon MPE 65mm lens, which debuted back in 1999, by the way. I mean, it's more than two decades old. And uh, it has a working distance of only four centimeters when you're at the closest magnification. So, you know, it's been a desire of many photographers to have a longer working distance there. So they up that to uh, 10 centimeters, more mm-hmm. than doubling it, uh, which I found to be useful in certain subjects. In fact, in practice, I found it incredibly valuable. However, the first lens that I received, and as soon as it was announced, I put my money down on it. I paid for express shipping, and I was so eager to put put it to the test. Um, it was awful. It was so awful, it was broken. I mean, it was yeah. just unfunctionally bad. 
And I decided to then say, okay, well, how bad is it compared to all of my other high magnification macro lenses that can get around five uh, to one magnification? And it was worse than lenses I had from the 1970s. Um, it didn't take long for the company to basically stop selling the lens, uh, effectively recall them, and well, say, now that was directly as a result of your article, too, right? There was a few other uh, people that had made some YouTube videos that were uh, that they had dissenting views on this, but I think mm -hmm. my article was the forefront of that action. Uh, I have no evidence that it was the only uh, component, but um, I got a response from them shortly after, and I had I commend them for this great amount of communication and honesty, because. I hate when people hide behind a cloud of, oh, there was some manufacturing process issue or whatever else. So sure. I'm going to read from their email. It says, uh, we have believed the issue, uh, we've identified the issue and believe that it's coming from a miscalculation of the numerical aperture and in turn leads to additional unused light rays reflected into the lens, creating much softer images. We have yesterday built an improved prototype and also compared it against the Liowa 25mm f2.8 lens, which also gets to 5 to 1 magnification. Uh, the results are much more comparable. Although it's hard to compare Apple to Apple due to the different numerical aperture instead of physical aperture, we'll save that discussion for another time, sure. um, but uh, uh, that we have with different working distances, uh, but we can conclude that the performance is much better than the existing lens. So they followed up with that in another email saying that they were pretty well ashamed of how this actually got out. And if you see the comparison between these two lenses, uh, in the article, I, uh, I do a, a left and right comparison. On the left is the original one. On the right is the revised design. And the uh, the front element, can you tell the difference between these two lenses? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a massive change. Yes, it is. Uh, so, Larry, I'm, I'm sure you read the article and you saw my comparative images. I did. Uh, what do you think about a company that is responsible, but that was so, I don't know, uh, unresponsible in the manufacturing or the design, manufacturing, testing, and shipping of this product to begin with? And then do they save face? Well, I, I appreciate how quickly, and in fact, I am, I guess, to a degree surprised how quickly they came up with yeah. the alternate version of the lens. You and I talked about this before, and I found it very interesting that they uh, produced the repaired version so quickly. So that has to let you know they kind of knew about it, but they didn't necessarily come out and say, um, yeah, you know, the reason it only took three days to come out with a, a repaired version is because... Uh, we kind of knew it was bad in the first place because then they have to face that. Why did you put out something that you knew was bad, incorrect, and or wrong? You have no idea what's going on behind the scenes with respect to the structure of the company, who rubber stamped what, who let it get out there. Um, but as I was reading through the article, it struck me that I've heard of this kind of practice before. And I agree with you uh, in your incredulousness that they would release a lens like that, that is supposed to have certain capabilities and so obviously doesn't do what it needs to do. And I was thinking about another lens that I had heard this exact same thing happen before. It was, um, I think the name of the lens was the Hubble Space Telescope. <laughs> <laughs> same kind of thing. They blew it 
and uh, had to had to retroactively repair it. Um, the nice thing is that this didn't require several years and a trip to outer space. This is true, uh, <laughs> uh, and Hubble is uh, is kind of breathing its last breaths right now. Uh, but it's done a wonderful job ever since it's been repaired. I agree. Um, but again, it's, it's another perfect example of how how could that have passed muster? How could that have been uh, passed? every engineer in that process and then you get that out into space and you take your first test shot and you say oh crap what 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 have we done uh but you know hopefully they don't have that issue with the uh the james webb telescope that will be its replacement in the next little while though i do hear that one's been slightly delayed um uh, this lens it it functions as a trade-off right you don't get an additional uh extended working distance for free it comes at a cost of critical resolution. And you see this with microscope objectives as well. If you want to have a super high resolution objective, it has to be like a half a millimeter away from the subject um, in order to get the best resolving power. If you need that further away, some of mine are multiple millimeters uh, away. The um, best ones I've used uh, are the um, uh, plan APO objectives from Michutoyo. And they've got a whole series from 1x to 100x. And, and they're great uh, because it lets me play with reflected light off the surface of them, which would be hard to do if you're right on top of the subject. Uh, but they're not quite as high resolution. They do have a high res version of their 5x objective. And the reason why they can accomplish that is the working distance gets cut in half. I see. So the further your working distance is away from your subject, the, the the lower your resolving power is going to be. That's not a fault of their design in terms of using incorrect optics at this point. It's just uh, a feature of their design of having a longer working distance. It has less chromatic aberration than the Canon MPE 65, which most lenses do these days. Mm -hmm. But still, that Canon lens is uh is that the still wearing the crown in terms of the absolute resolution in a camera lens that you can just go out and buy without resorting to uh putting microscope objectives on your camera well, i, I like this new lens it's fun but and i and i appreciated how you unpacked what the additional distance would provide and how you can light more flexibly with oh, that, yeah. you that can make images difference. that you you wouldn't otherwise be able to make. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so, and, and I got a beautiful uh, double terminated arrowhead snowflake crystal as a result of my first test run with this camera. And I'd never seen one before. And even if I had, I'd never been able to get reflected light off of those particular crystals, but now I can. So it's a case of a lens that, yeah, you might sacrifice critical resolution in some way, but you're taking an image that you otherwise would never have been able to take. And thereby, it is a very useful tool at less than half the price of the Canon lens. So um, good on them, uh, but uh, shame on them kind of at the same time. I, I don't know really where I fall on that, but I just wanted to bring that to everybody's attention, that it's fixed, and it's as good as I think it can be. Well, and, and when you consider some companies that we've all dealt with in the past, that when they come up with something like this, they just go into full defense mode. Yeah, uh, and and it was it was a breath of fresh air that that was not your experience. Uh, I agree, I agree. Now, uh, speaking on that uh, breath of fresh air, I love the next story. We have got two more in the rundown, but I think they'll be pretty quick. Um, uh, also from Petapixel, artist flooded with requests after offering to quote remove your ex for ten dollars per photo. And uh, well, this is not going to be a perfect job 
uh, the fact that somebody has just made sort of a little cottage industry of using what amounts to their smartphone and an app, although I don't think that there's that they state exactly which app they're they're no, using. No, I didn't see here. any mention of that. Uh, not that that terribly matters for the discussion, but if you want to quickly remove somebody from a photograph uh, and you don't have the skill wherewithal or interest in doing it yourself, to pay somebody 10 bucks? Later on, they raised their price to 15 after 800 requests. Sure. Um, but uh, this person's going to be busy for a little while, Larry. Did you see this as being a market that everybody wanted to corner? I had no idea. It struck me as so funny uh, because I saw so many of the before and afters and uh, one girl holding a puppy dog and her ex is in the image and then in the, in the next, she's just holding her puppy dog. And uh, so it was it was fun and funny and reminiscent of somebody that I've seen for a number of years on social media. And I don't know if you've heard of James Fridman. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. Where he oh, takes the requests. Literally. And- uh, well, and sometimes uh, we say literally, but and I can't bring up an example off the top of my head. Maybe you've got one, but he intentionally tries to uh, to, to misinterpret the information provided exactly. for comical effect. Exactly. So uh, just for instance, a girl has a photograph of herself in a, an area where there's a Oh, an historic looking brick wall behind her that happens to have a little bit of graffiti on the brick wall. And so she sends the image in and says, can you please clean the wall behind me? And so his Photoshopped result is he puts himself into the image with a sponge sitting and cleaning the wall behind her. And yeah, it still has the junk on it. And so it's it's silly things like that. And then I also always appreciated when somebody would send him a, a picture and uh, a pretty young girl says, would you please blur out my freckles? And he responds, no, you're beautiful. It makes you unique. And so I, I appreciate his humanity in some of these personal requests to change a function or a thing about me that I don't like, he reframes it for those people. But for the most part, it's just so much fun and funny. And his website is actually James, J-A-M-E-S-F-R-I-D-M-A-N.com. And you can see, and if you've never heard of him, if you've never seen his before and after images, uh, you will find yourself laughing out loud for some time reading through some of his before and afters and uh, the stated requests. So that's what that's what I started to think about immediately when I saw this, this young girl was making money by removing your ex. Now, if, uh, <laughs> if it takes her 10 minutes at yeah. $15 an hour, um, that's good money. Oh, I mean, yeah. Uh, especially because if it's, if it's an app and you're sitting there on your phone, just cozying up on the couch, doing this kind of stuff, it's not really stressful work either. And yes, in just about every one of them, I can pick up flaws. They're not going to be perfect. I can see repeating cloning patterns. Um, I I can see, you know, where walls don't perfectly line up, uh, based on, uh, on what was there before. And yeah, there was a shoe left in the original one that she didn't edit out, but all of those things aside, uh, for 10 or 15 bucks. I mean, I, I don't have an ex I'd need to get rid of in a photograph, but if I did, I'd know who to hire if I didn't have the skills to do so myself. It's just fun. 
and it's innovative in the industry that we're in right now where that type of uh, editing service would have costed, you know, add a zero or more to it for mediocre results in the past 10 years. Um, but the artificial intelligence algorithms and the tools that we have at our disposal today, even if somebody else doesn't know how to use them, but you do, that's an advantage to you. And corner that market, find a way to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to hang out my shingle in a way nobody has done before because the tools weren't available to do that before. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I'm i happy for her viral success. Would you be willing to bet that there's a filter on the iPhone 13 called remove your X from image? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not remove your ex, but uh, remove a person, let's uh -huh, say, uh -huh. uh, would be a more general term. And uh, with with the way software is going, especially if an image taken uh, with the iPhone, uh, at least a modern one, has depth map information still available, it might be even easier to remove an object or a person from that frame with that extra information to, uh, uh, to fuel the engines in behind. Of course. And we see yeah. so many, so many things. Whatever is popular in post-processing, we see photography companies and software companies and smartphone uh, companies coming up with filters to do those things. So it might be uh, beams of light or it might be sky replacement, as we talked about. Um, and we're seeing so many of those things be done with artificial intelligence. My iPhone 11, and I did not get the iPhone 11 Pro. Um, you don't need it. I don't. It just has an extra lens, right? And it's yeah. it, actually the iPhone 11 is slightly bigger, if I remember correctly. What I like about it is that it has the, um, the portrait mode. And the portrait mode works for non-humans on the iPhone 11. And so I was just experimenting with that on a recent vacation in the Tennessee mountains. And I took a picture of my dog and it did a darn good job of beautiful bokeh in the background. And the dog was nice and sharp and crisp in the foreground. How machines interpret our images to our benefit um, has been constantly improving. And um, I guess that leads into the next story. Um, also from Petapixel, is here's what's hap what happens when you post uh, a photo to Instagram hundreds of times. And that's not just posting a hundred of the same image, it's posting it, downloading it, and reposting it to just see what the Instagram algorithm is doing to your images. And I wouldn't put it past Facebook, uh, who owns Instagram, to have been doing this for many years. The algorithms might be more sophisticated or constantly being adjusted based on input. But when you send an image to any social media platform, you can guarantee one of two things, uh, that they will be compressing the heck out of your image in order sure. to save on bandwidth, uh, or they will be modifying the image in some way to make it more beautiful, a la a, um, a filter, or behind the scenes, just sharpening certain elements of the frame that we know we're going to be more attracted to, like the eyes of somebody's face. Um, and so uh, this enterprising photographer, uh, Janik Entremont, uh, uh, took a portrait of himself, uploaded it to in Instagram, downloaded uh, that image, and repeated that over 300 times and showed the result of what Instagram does to your work in subtle ways that would be undetected from a single frame. But on uh, mass, when you see exactly what they're doing, it kind of reveals something about that process behind the scenes that we otherwise wouldn't have seen. What do you think about this, Larry? Well, I think it does, but I think it's also potentially slightly misleading because while we know that that kind of thing is going on, the artificial intelligence algorithm that's being applied 
sees a human face on the first one and the second one and maybe the third one and the fifth and the twelfth and the hundredth. And then at some point, it's <laughs> becoming in and of itself a form of distorted art and potentially the algorithm is changing. And so ultimately with 300 iterations of the image, it's possible that we're looking at it saying, oh, that's what it's doing to the human face when really it may have started out that way, doing certain things to the human face, and then it ends up doing something else. I think I've seen these kinds of things done with uh, videos, where, yeah. where videos are saved and resaved and resaved uh, and exported and saved as MP4 again and again and again, and we end up losing a great deal of the integrity. Um, same kind of thing happens with JPEG images. You get soft areas that get softer and softer and softer. So I think it's a fun experiment. I am thrilled that somebody took the time to do this so we can read a relatively interesting article about it. And I'm yeah. also very happy it wasn't me because I don't have that kind of time. <laughs> well, um, at the same time, it, it does show some potential flaws in the Instagram algorithm. The face True. gets squished over time, yeah. uh, usually like pixel by pixel or maybe even sub pixel shifts where the image becomes um, uh, more horizontally squished or, or vertically squished. So it's a more horizontal frame than otherwise. And it seems like that's just a an artifact of the algorithm that would otherwise never be seen. And the folks, the engineers behind the scenes can easily adjust that and prevent that sort of thing from happening again in the future. Um, but, you know, it was interesting that it did affect the eyes, especially the, the, the cheeks and that particular area of the face more often um, than other areas. And that just says, hey, it's sharpening the eyes to some degree. It's yeah. taking some, um, some impetus uh, away from you as the photographer, knowing that, hey, these eyes, based on the 99% of images that it sees, should be a little bit sharper because that's a point of contact uh, visually to the image. Uh, and to to say that that's wrong, I don't think that's wrong at all. I, mean, I don't uh, think so. Especially when you were mentioning about your your dog uh, portrait that looked phenomenal. There's a lot of um, intelligent decision making made by machines behind the scene. Sure. Um, that you are happy with as a result. So to see this, it just reveals them, and I'm happy that uh, that we can kind of see sort of how the sausage is made in a way on that uh, on that final. Uh, well, I'm final happy. Story that, I'm happy that the artificial intelligence exists to begin with. I remember the very first time I picked up a, a Sony camera that I was reviewing at the time, and it had the ability to find the human eye, not just the human face. Uh, artificially and then focus there and and actually make sure that the most precise focus was on the closest single human eye in a portrait image. I was blown away by that. And this this appears to be uh, the post-processing version of the same thing where they're recognizing certain aspects to an image and amplifying or uh, improving those. And ultimately, this goes back to what I used to do with Photoshop images and following a, a Photoshop mentor of mine, David Kearden, I would take images. I actually remember taking David Kearden's class over a weekend. Um, it was a, a Kelby one class and I watched the class. I had just taken a whole bunch of um, publicity portraits for a friend of mine. Then I watched David's class. And I'm like, oh, crud. I got to go back and redo all my <laughs> retouching. And spend so much more time working on the human eyes. And I would add uh, a reflection in the eyes that wasn't there to begin with. And I would actually recreate eyes based on what I learned in this class. And 
the result is I got a lot of very good compliments on the photography that I had done. And ultimately, what was interesting is that I was the artificial intelligence fixing the eyes and and actually recreating them to a degree. Uh, That was a wonderful result. Nobody said, oh, you must have drawn those eyes in separately. Nobody picked up on it. Even the guy that looks at himself in the mirror every day and says, yeah, those are my eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and at the same time, though, that job is now obsolete with artificial intelligence algorithms. It can do that for you. Yeah. Uh, Or at least it will be within the next few years uh, because of the way technology is progressing. Uh, The way it gets better is also kind of the way it gets worse. And I was just reminded of a of an XKCD comic um, uh, called Digital Data. And I'll Uh put this as a related note in the uh, comments that basically says, uh, it's a conversation uh, between two of the characters in the comic that says, the great thing about digital data is that it never degrades. Hard drives fail, of course, but their bits can be copied forever without loss. Film degrades, paint cracks, but a copy of a century-old data file is identical to the original. If humanity has a permanent record, we are the first generation in it. Um, Meanwhile, through those four frames, it degrades progressively. Uh, the first one gets a little bit less quality. The second one, you can see it's a screenshot that has a bit of like a uh, the, the app window on it that was taken. And uh, the, the final frame has watermarks placed all over it, a web browser bar at the top and so on and so forth. Yes, we are, we are in the digital era, but things are constantly being modified, degraded, enhanced, and compressed in many different ways, often without our permission or knowledge. Well, um, and I think a lot of people miss that a little bit, that they are being compressed in ways that they did not, uh, did not expect. And you as a podcaster know that uh, you use certain tools to make the audio sound the best possible way that it can. Only if I like the guest. <laughs> I understand, but, but we Uh, all, we all use these tools to our, our best possible advantage. And we determine what is an acceptable level as photographers. What's an acceptable level of JPEG compression. Um, and, and maybe that will be revised as the new, uh, uh, a high, a high efficiency image format takes hold and replaces JPEG, which may or may not happen. Um, but, uh, we've been fine with it thus far at least because it was the only option that we had and it will continue to evolve. Uh, but so too does everything in the industry. It's constantly changing. New innovations abound. Um, and let's get into the picks of the week because I think that there's some really fun things to talk about there as we wind down the show. Yep. Uh, Larry, what, what, why don't you go first? Well, my uh, focus emphasis these days is on video and video production. Um, I've got a book coming out very soon that is about being on camera and uh, a chunk of what I do in the local market here in central Florida, a big chunk of what I do is I help people who are not photographers and not videographers create photos and videos, uh, for use in their business. And in some cases it's to be on social media in the form of video. And in some cases it's real estate professionals who have always taken nothing but crummy, uh, vertical handheld snapshots with their, uh, with their smartphone. And I think- I hate to say, I expect to see that now. Yep. I hate that, that I say that because whenever I'm trying to, uh, to look something up, a local business, a small business, they have the worst quality promotional material. And I said, yeah, well, that's acceptable because that's just what everybody does. I shouldn't say that because it's so awful to represent yourself that way. I agree. Yeah. That's kind of, 
There are so many things that with technology, we put up with garbage. You would think that this is supposed to be, when I was growing up, I was, I was thinking that the future was going to be fantastic because I watched Star Trek, the original (laughs) Star Trek series, and then the, uh, the next generation. And I thought, wow, the future is going to be amazing. It's going to be incredible. And when I'm holding my iPad, I'm thinking I am holding what, uh, Patrick Stewart held, you know, the, the, uh, tablet and, and it's wonderful in so many ways, but at the same time, um, when I call the bank, I have to press one and press three and press seven <laughs> and, and listen to a recording and wait for me to get to connected to somebody who's not in the country where I am. So they can tell me in, in broken English about my credit card bill. Uh, it's just, uh, it's interesting that we evolve and progress positively in so many ways, and yet other ways we do not. So I, I went to a uh, a store recently, and uh, we were buying my daughter, who's three years old, some dancing shoes. And I recognized the terminal on their uh, on their uh, POS, uh, their point of sale computer system, to be uh, a very antiquated AS four hundred system. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, this is like uh, ASCII characters, almost like command line, but you can move a character around kind of thing to select different boxes. Um, and this is 2020 and somebody somewhere still finds that acceptable. So that's frustrating too. Anyhow, what, what, what is your pick? <laughs> uh, so my, my picture is a photograph of a little gear setup that I pulled together for my friends and clients who are primarily in the real estate business, but it works for really anybody that wants to film themselves. The first thing that is frustrating to me as a video creator, when I'm trying to help people capture their own nicer looking videos is they do what I call vertical video shaky cam. And it, it is what we've come to expect in the Instagram and Facebook live era. And so I, I help these people mount their camera horizontally, and then take smoother video by having uh, a frame around that mount, that horizontal mount. So it's not just get your camera horizontal. It's get your camera horizontal. Now, here's where you can put a microphone, and here's where you can put some lights if you need lights, and they're they're small lights. And then, uh, like, I think I have Lytra lights on mine. And then um, I also have a, a little mini... Uh, Manfrotto pixie tripod on the base of this frame. And just one of the things that's a light bulb moment for people when they start doing something like this is I say, okay, now put your camera in here and we're just going to walk around in this listing. And I want you to walk through the listing, talking to your smartphone while you're doing this and show me around the house. And so they're a real estate professional. They are used to doing showings and they know what they're going to say and how they're going to say it and what they want to show off. So they start walking through the listing and they have the camera on themselves as they should in the beginning. And they're walking through the listing and then they touch the little uh, double arrow and it flips around and it takes the away camera. And they're looking at the listing as they're walking through. Now, granted, they they do need a little bit of help with camera technique at some point. But then as soon as we go to play back the video, they realize the audio is terrible because <laughs> Apple, even on my old iPhone 7 when I was using that, uh, the audio was designed to pick up 
most of the sound from whichever camera was on. So if the away camera is on, it thinks you're filming the kids at a distance or something like that. And so it tries to pick up audio from away. And when it's on the selfie mode camera, then it tries to pick up the audio from you. And so if you're doing a showing and walking through a listing and you're talking, you're nice and loud and you sound wonderful while you're walking through and it's on talking you. Talking to the back of a microphone. Exactly. Uh, but when you flip it around. But yeah. as soon as you flip it around, then it sounds an awful lot like this and it's just, it's terrible. So then what I do is show them how to mount a microphone on the frame and how to have the microphone always pointed at themselves so that when they do flip the camera, the microphone stays pointed at them. They continue a narration that sounds good and professional. So it's a number of things like that. So I put together a little mini, very inexpensive kit. I'm not even, I'm not selling the kit. I don't do anything like that. I send them links to uh, purchase the gear from um, uh, a New York camera store and from Amazon. Some of it comes from one place and some comes from the other. And um, so I took a picture of my little suggested setup for people getting into videos like that. Well, we'll put that in the show notes for sure. And hopefully the links for all of the different components that sure. go into that. Um, but I also want to know of links where people can find you, Larry. Where uh, where online would you like to direct the audience if they need more Larry Becker? Wonderful question. I have two websites that I am absolutely ashamed to mention today. And that's because um, I've actually written a book and the book is coming out soon. I'm still in negotiations with a couple different publishers, so I'm not sure exactly how soon the book is done and it's called great on camera and it is to help people who need to be on camera. And so I've got that as a website greatoncamera.com. The problem is if you go there today, as we're recording this, you will see a haphazard mishmash of a WordPress template with some accurate photos and some inaccurate. I'm still working on that. And I am at a little bit more, uh, closer to complete, but in the same stage. And I, and I hope to be finished with both of these websites in the next couple of days, uh, over at lbecker.com. So L for Larry, lbecker.com. And I have tried for many, many, many years to secure the domain name LarryBecker.com. As you might guess, there are four people named Larry Becker in my small town in Central Florida. So there are a <laughs> lot of them across the country. And the guy that nailed down LarryBecker.com 15 years ago, he was selling liquid vitamins online. Oh, Ke lovely. He kept the domain, but he is no longer uh, even showing that website. So I've tried and tried to get that website uh, domain, but I can't. So it's just lbecker.com or greatoncamera.com. Thank you for asking. Please cut me a little slack for a couple of days before you give me a hard time about how terrible right, well, the site is. We'll put uh, also put show notes uh, or links in the show notes to your social media places where people can get in touch and send you, uh, uh, you know, comments or questions sure. on uh, 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 Twitter or wherever else you are. I've got those from the previous episode you were on. Very so. good. All right. Uh, my pick of the week to, to wind off the episode is uh, is a new acquisition that I finally received um, from Peak Design. It's the actually first product that I have from that company. Uh, this is their Peak Design Travel Tripod. And uh, I bought into it uh, partly because well, it was a nice design. I already had a good tripod. You can only, I don't know, I, I want to say you can only have so many tripods, but people will disagree because they might have 20. Um, but uh, they had promoted my upcoming macro book as a part of an update on their Kickstarter campaign. Uh -huh. uh, and I, I gave them some love back and I bought a copy of this tripod. And I'm so glad that I did. 
I mean, it's over-engineered to the nines. I got the carbon fiber version, but even the aluminum one would all have the same features aside from the material. Uh, One of the things I look for in a tripod is that it has little latches and levers rather than twisty pieces. I so appreciate that. Yes. Because if I have a little twisty knob on a leg, I don't know if it's secure or not uh, because it just looks the same. Like it might be slightly loose. It might not be. And so this comes in five segments with four different latches to extend the additional four segments as they're needed. Um, And uh, just there's so many little things about the design that I love that um, I wouldn't have seen from any other manufacturer. One of them, which... I only discovered kind of by accident is the center column of the tripod mm-hmm. has a little uh, hook to weigh down the tripod with a camera sure. bag. But if you pull that out, that actually comes off. Okay. But hiding underneath that is this extra little piece. This extra little piece is a, uh, a smartphone mount that you can mount your smartphone horizontally and it can stretch out. And the base of this is Arca Swiss compatible. Oh, so that's this is so hiding. Good. It's hiding in the center column of the tripod for whenever you would want to use that. And you can just slide that right on back in there. And uh, it's just all magnetically combined together. And so just stuff like that, if they're, if they're taking care of that in terms of a detail, then they've taken care of just about everything else. Um, the only real, I don't want to say complaint, but the only thing that I might want to improve on um, is the ball head. Even the, the uh, mechanism to send the center column up and down, it will spin out, but it'll actually come out a little bit as well, just for a better grip. Um, the ball head is okay. It, it's not great. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I don't like about it is that it has a mechanism, uh, two mechanisms that rotate uh, clockwise and counterclockwise um, that will release the, uh, the, uh, the quick release plate. But that also, in the same direction, releases the, uh, the tension on the ball. So uh. I can tighten things up in both ways. But if I'm loosening up the ball head, I might accidentally loosen the quick release plate as I well. I see, yeah. Uh, and that could be a potential issue there. Uh, but I mean, that, that's a minor gripe. I actually got a, a universal head adapter uh, that they're uh, selling now and they did through the Kickstarter campaign that I supported them on. And I can replace this head with any head of my liking, which is where my platyball is going to go exactly. as soon as I receive one. Uh, and so that will match this design very, very nicely. It'll still be almost as compact that the head will be a little bit higher, um, but uh, even more functional. And that's where I plan on putting that wonderful invention from the good folks at uh, Platypod. So uh, it's it's a, it's a wonderful little uh, little product. Even just the fact that they put a, uh, a multi tool on the side that has multiple Allen keys that just yep. kind of fits right on the side. That might even fall off at some point because it just kind of clips off. But it's just nice to have all of these things in a ready to go fashion. That the tripod itself, when fully extended, is five feet tall. It's five feet tall and light. And uh, so, I you know what I, I'm not. I don't like give a cult following to to companies very often, but if this is the quality that they can produce on a tripod like this, I would seriously look at just about anything else that they've manufactured. If it's to the same level of design. It is. I I remember seeing when the Kickstarter Kickstarter first came out and um, it is very impressive, very thoughtful. I love that in our industry, when tripods have been around for eons, centuries, uh, that they are still improving and still uh, that that the people in our industry care enough. Obviously, they are participating and they see the things that matter most. I appreciate the clip leg 
uh, sections as opposed to those spinning connectors because of the speed. I mean, also when I'm freezing cold and I'm wearing thick gloves outside, <laughs> I can't tell if I've put enough tension on a little spinning piece, but right? I know exactly how secure it is if it's a latch. Well, I, I have a solution for uh, that I came up with years ago, and that was to purchase a very specific tripod that is stupid heavy, but <laughs> but I love everything else about it, but the weight, and it's worth it to me. It's the uh, Neotech. I don't know if you've ever seen that, the Manfrotto Neotech tripod, mm-hmm. and, and I love it because it does not have any latches or spinning connectors or anything. The legs come out when you pull them, and they lock in place to whatever length you've pulled them out up to the maximum length, and to get them to go back, you just push one pressure release button at the top center of the tripod and they go back and i i was teased a bit about having this tripod and again it is a very sturdy tripod it is an extra couple of pounds compared to others it's uh, heavy duty aluminum but i loved it when i went on a photo journey with my friend scott kelby and matt Kloskowski and a number of others we were all in a van and we were riding around in the bahamas It was sunset and we were racing to get this beautiful sunset in this bay where there was a a small lighthouse and we all jumped out. the, The van driver just barely got us there in time. We all jumped out and we ran to set up our tripods and we were taking this gorgeous sunset just had just a minute or two uh, when the sun was in just exactly the right spot. And I, of course, was set up before anybody else. I mean, I I had all three legs out and I was snapping pictures while they were still working on their first leg. And then I um, got got a few pictures of the sunset. And it turns out there was also a ship, a cargo ship in the harbor that was moving along. And as soon as the guys got their third leg locked in place, they pointed it toward the lighthouse and the sunset, and there was a big ship blocking the entire image. So I am Larry. Can, can I can I get one. that image from you? I can, can I, I, I'd love to put that in the show notes just to illustrate exactly what that accomplished for you. I'm going to have to look through a number of hard drives to see where I can find. If that. you can't, that's fine. But it's a great story nonetheless. Yeah, it was a kick. Um, and and so I mean. My, I usually make gear picks, not always, but when something is truly innovative and they yeah. have fun with it too. I mean, like if I were to, to read on the, uh, um, on the leg here, it says, uh, where does it say here? Uh, a travel tripod, compact ball head, five segments, 150 centimeters, max height. And then it says carbon F and fiber. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean that just, you get a, you get a bonus point for me for doing that yeah. on this one. So <laughs> I would say if I did not have a carbon fiber travel tripod, I would buy one of those. Yeah, it's not cheap. I don't remember what the the actual retail price is yep. now after the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, you know, uh, set your expectations to be very expensive, but yep. the aluminum one is going to be identical in terms of form and function. It's just going to be a bit heavier. Yep, uh, and, and so not even would- that much. Not not much. No, you pay a very significant premium to have a little bit of lighter weight. Um, but uh, that's my pick. And uh, Larry, I want to say thank you again for being on this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Um, we'll have the links in the show notes to everything we talked about, including where you can find Larry. Uh, and uh, I always encourage feedback and commentary on the topics that we discuss. Make that conversation something that other people can be brought into, or uh, just send me an email. Just let me know if you liked the topics that we discussed, or if you have 
have any new topics that you would like us to discuss on future episodes uh, and uh, opinions on the guests. If you have anybody to recommend for other guests hosts as well, that's always open to us. Thank you so much to everybody that's been listening. I appreciate your time and it has been a, uh, an hour and 18 minutes. So thank you. And it's time to get out and shoot. 